If you would please turn to 2 Samuel chapter 24. 2 Samuel 24. By way of information, almost the same information in 2 Samuel 24 can be found in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. So it's a companion text with only a few slight differences. Could we have the slide for this chapter? There you go. You can see what the subject is of this chapter. It's about temptation. It's about God's anger. It's about David's sin and the consequences of that sin. Let's take a look how that chapter is divided up. First of all, in the first verse, we see David's temptation to number Israel. And then in verses 2 and 3, a way of escape to resist the temptation to number Israel. And then in uh, verse 4, we see that David doesn't take the way of escape that God offers him to resist the temptation. And then we see that Joab, David's right-hand man, leads the men to take the census, even though he's not in favor of the census, verses 5 through 8. And then when they come back with the census, there's a discrepancy in the numbers and in the count, particularly between 2 Samuel and between 1 Chronicles. And then in verse 10, David confesses his sin and asks for forgiveness. God lets David choose his punishment. And then we see what uh, choice David makes in verse 14. And then we see the punishment for David's sin. And then we see David interceding for Israel in verse 17. And then God's instructions to David how to stop the plague. Let's pray together first. Our Father, we look to you tonight to be our teacher, to instruct us in your word, to help us, O oh God, to apply what we learn tonight to our daily lives, to give us more strength to fight the battle of faith, to walk with you and to be better Christian people. So we pray for each one here tonight, Father, that you would help us to learn, help us to bring, take this down into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, 2 Samuel 24, the first part, or, or verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, Go, number Israel and Judah. I want to draw your attention to the two words that we begin with an A in that verse. Again, the anger. So God was angry more than once with Israel, and we, see, we talk about it tonight. So God was angry with Israel again. He's angry with his chosen people once again. When you, if you're an Old Testament student, you know that Israel is full of instances where the people made God angry. They complained in the wilderness. They didn't like the food God provided every day. They made graven images and worshipped them. When God had said very clearly... Don't do that. When he gave the law in Exodus 20, he said, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. Any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. And then another thing that Israel did to anger God, they demanded a king when God said, I'm your king. And then, of course, years later than this chapter, the Lord Jesus came and as their savior and they rejected him. In the New Testament, it says he came unto his own and his own received him not. Have you ever considered the thoughts or actions that make God angry? What are the things that make God angry? You know, there are a lot of bad ideas in the world, but the worst idea I can think of is how to make God angry. I do not wish to make God angry. I've uh, written down a few things that make God angry. In Proverbs 6, there are six things listed. These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. How about taking his name in vain? In Exodus 20, he says, You shall not take the name of your Lord God, the Lord your God, in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And that includes Jesus Christ. How many times do you hear today the name Jesus Christ taken in vain? It's just a common phrase in our society today. I hear young people, middle-aged people, old people saying Jesus Christ as a swear word. It makes God angry. How about not honoring your father and your mother? Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. How about unfaithfulness to your wife? You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. And then this is one that the world doesn't want to hear today, but nevertheless it's in the word of God, Leviticus chapter 18. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. These are the things that make God angry. It says in verse 1 that, that God was angry, so he moved David to number Israel. He said, go, number Israel and Judah. Now, in 1 Chronicles 21, which is the same text with some exceptions, in 1 Chronicles 21, it doesn't say God moved David to number Israel. It says Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. So is this a contradiction in the word of God? I don't think so. You know, uh, God doesn't tempt anybody. It says in James that let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. So who did the tempting? Well, Satan did the tempting and God allowed him to tempt David. Why does God allow us to be tempted? Well, he does allow us to be tempted. But he doesn't, he always gives us a way of escape when we are tempted. Are you aware that God always makes a way of escape when he allows you to be tempted? 
In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it says, No temptation has overtaken you except such is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So what are the conclusions of these first couple of verses? Well, God allowed David to be tempted by the devil. David did not have to succumb to the temptation. Because God is faithful, he will not allow David to be tempted beyond his ability to resist. He will always make a way to enable his children to refuse the temptation. In this case, we see in our text, we see the way of escape, but David didn't take it. In this case, it's Joab who was the way of escape for the temptation. Look at verse 2. So the king said to Joab, in other words, David said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, now go throughout all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba. In other words, from the north, the extreme north of Israel to the extreme south, and count the people, that I may know the number of the people. And Joab said to the king, Now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times more than there are, and may the eyes of my Lord the king see it. But why does my Lord the king desire this thing? In other words, Joab was saying, God is our deliverer. He will fight for us. We, don't, we can trust in the number of armed men that we have. We don't have to figure out how many there are because God is really the one who fights our battles. There are some examples in Scripture of God being the one who fights the battles. And we, we don't need to trust in chariots or in horses. We need to trust the Lord our God. But in Psalm 20, which David wrote, he said, I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. So David says, go count Israel. And we'll see later that David really wanted to know how many armed men he had in Israel. I guess he was concerned about his enemies. But Joab is right. Joab says, you know, God is our champion. He will fight for us. So don't do this, David. There's a passage in 2 Kings that helps us with this point tonight. Would you turn to 2 Kings chapter 6, please? 2 Kings chapter 6. We'll put it in at verse 8. This is an example of how God is fighting our battles for us. 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 8. Now the king of Syria was making war against Israel. And he consulted with his servants, saying, My camp will be in such and such a place. And the man of God sent to the king of Israel, saying, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are coming down there. Then the king of Israel sent someone to the place of which the man of God had told him. Thus he warned him, and he was watchful there, not just once or twice. I'm at verse 11. Therefore the heart of the king of Syria was greatly troubled by this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? 
And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. So he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and get him. And it was told him, saying, Surely he is in Dothan. Therefore he sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So he answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open the eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So Joab was saying, don't count the people, David. God fights our battles for us. Don't do that. Well, this was his way of escape when Joab said, don't do it. He should have rethought it, but he did not. He didn't take the way of escape that God offered him. Verse 4. Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the captains of the army. Therefore, Joab and the captains of the army went out from the presence of the king to count the people of Israel. Evidently, David didn't, he either saw the way of escape but chose not to take it. He must have hardened his heart and insisted on having his way. Let me ask you this. Did David think because he was the king and a man of God that he was absolutely right in this thing he told Joab to do? Is that what happened? Or did he pray and ask God if this was within God's will? I don't think so. Evidently not. How do we know this? We're going to see later in the chapter it definitely was not God's will for David to number Israel. So David must not have prayed and asked God. You know why I know that? The Bible is very clear on this issue. God answers prayers for guidance and understanding. Now, I've picked a New Testament verse, but New Testament verses are just as good as Old Testament verses. In James 1, it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So if David had asked for wisdom, God would have given it to him, and he would have known better. Now, in this next section, verses 5 through 8, we see that Joab leads the men to take the census. It's going to take him a long time to do this. And he's going to be putting his people in danger as he goes through the land, counting the people. Verse 5, And they crossed over the Jordan and camped in Orer on the right side of the town, which is in the midst of the ravine of Gad toward Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to the land of Another hard phrase to pronounce. I'm not going to do it. They came to Dan, John, and around to Sidon. And they came to the stronghold of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. Then they went out to the south, Judah, as far as Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. So it took them the better part of a year almost to count all of these people. And they put the men that... that did the counting in danger in unfriendly territory, the Hivites and the Canaanites. Now, when they get back and report the numbers to David, we're going to see that there's a discrepancy in the numbers. 
You know, Bible skeptics love to point out these, these, uh, these discrepancies. But, you know, uh, with all the technology we have today, we can't seem to get a consensus right either. <laughs> you ever notice that? Or a vote? Think about the vote when Bush was running uh, and when they had all, we had all the problems in Florida and other places. Verse 9, Then Joab gave the sum of the number of the people to the king, and there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000 men. So that's a total of 8 and 5. That's a total of 1.3 million soldiers who had skill in fighting and who were able to draw the sword. Now, isn't it interesting that he doesn't say this is all the people of Israel. These are the people who are valiant soldiers who are able, who are skilled with the sword. So this must have been the intent of David that he wanted to see what kind of army he really had. Now, this is a report on the skeptics about this. In the books of Samuel, the census is said to indicate that there were 1.3 million men fit for military service. The book of Chronicles states that the figure was 1,570,000 men fit for military service. There are some reasons why they made this, why the count is not accurate or why it's different uh, in one book to the other. Uh, let me give you some of the reasons why. Well, first of all, in 1 Chronicles 21, verse 6, it says that Joab did not count Levi and Benjamin among them, for the king's word was abominable to Joab. In other words, he said he was going to obey the king, and he went out and he purposely did not count the people in the tribe of Levi or the tribe of Benjamin. In other words, he was insubordinate to his king because he thought it was reprehensible to do this. Let me read you several scholars' opinions. Joab's reluctance to complete the census is thought by some scholars to have been due to a religious belief that the people belonged to God and hence that only God should know how many people there were. Some scholars believe the motive was pride, that David's numbering of the people was to show his strength as a king. His sin in this was relying on human numbers instead of God. Other scholars believe that a more mundane motive is the reason, that the knowledge gained from a census would enable David to impose more accurate taxes and levies, and thus the census would be unpopular with the people who are at risk of higher taxes or levies. I have no idea whether any of them are right. But whatever it was, God didn't like it, and David should not have done it. And then in 1 Chronicles 27, we have another reason why the census wasn't accurate. But David did not take the number of those 20 years old and under, because the Lord had said he would multiply Israel like the stars of the heavens. Joab, the son of Zariah, began a census, but he did not finish, for the wrath for wrath came upon Israel because of this census, nor was the number recorded in the account of the Chronicles of King David. So there was a discrepancy in the census. And I say to the skeptic, so what? God didn't count them. God didn't make the mistake. It was Joab and his men who made the mistake. It wasn't God. And they recorded what they counted or what they didn't count in some cases. Now, all of a sudden, David realizes he has sinned 
in doing this. And in verse 10, he confesses his sin and he asks for forgiveness. It says in verse 10, And David's heart condemned him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now I pray, O Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. I love that about David. I mean, David, David goofed up as much as almost anybody in the scriptures. And his sins are recorded for all of us to see. But when he recognized that he had sinned, he was quick to repent. He kept short accounts with God when he did things wrong. So David had his faults and his, favorite, his failures. We've studied those for the last few months, have we not? But he also had a number of characteristics that I think are very admirable. David was a generous man. Think about when Saul, who treated him miserably for years, and had chased him and tried to kill him and do him harm. After Saul died, David searched through Saul's descendants and said, Are there any descendants of the house of Saul that I may show kindness to them? And he found Mephibosheth. And uh, can you imagine how much he had to fight when he was a little boy? What is your name? Mephibosheth. Whack! <laughs> he he uh, gave everything that Saul had left, he gave it to Mephibosheth. Lands, money, houses, everything. He didn't keep any of it for himself. He gave it, he was generous. And then he was courageous. When he was not much more than a teenager, probably a teenager, when he was taking care of his father's sheep, he killed a lion and a bear. He killed Goliath, who was a lot bigger than he was. And then he was a valiant leader of Israel's army. If you think about it, he was like one of our famous generals in Israel. When I think of people like General Eisenhower, who helped us win World War II, or General Patton or General MacArthur, I think of guys like David. David was a valiant leader of the army of Israel. And he was highly respected by his men and the people of the nation. You know, you might be able to fool some of the people, but army generals can't fool the guys in the ranks. They just can't. So when the guys in the ranks respect the general, he's generally a good man, somebody they can really look up to, and that was David. And then another thing I love about David, he had a great zeal for the kingdom of God. He said in Psalm 69, which he wrote, verse 9, he says, The zeal for your house has eaten me up. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Because David loved God and loved God's kingdom, he was willing to take the reproach of those who did not love God and did not love his kingdom. You know, I hear the echo of the Lord Jesus himself. In John chapter 15, Jesus said, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. David was willing to bear the reproach that goes with loving God. I shared this with some of the pastors just this morning. I hope they won't mind if I repeat it. But some of you know who Britt Hume is, I think. Britt Hume has been a in the media world for a long time. He's been in national news. He 
He's now retired, but he's a, often a spokesman on Fox News. Do you remember when uh, it became public what, um, I can't even think of his name right now, help me, Tiger Woods. When it came out what Tiger Woods had done, Britt Hume was asked that on national television one night. What do you think? He said, well, you know, I've, all, I've respected Tiger Woods. He's the most skilled golfer probably of all time. And I thought that he was very disciplined in his private life, but he's not. He said, I'd like to offer some advice to Tiger Woods. He said, I understand that Tiger is a Buddhist, but Buddhists do not offer redemption to the people who believe in Buddhism. He says, well, I would recommend to Tiger Woods Jesus Christ and Christianity because they offer a person salvation and peace from their sins, forgiveness of their sins. He said that on national TV. It was amazing. And the people who hate God have come out in great numbers, ridiculing Brit Hume, calling him a bigot, and somebody who was one-sided and way out there, away from the normal American person. I say praise God for Brit Hume. How did David know that he had sinned? Well, his heart condemned him after he had numbered the people. It says in verse 10 that David's heart condemned him. In John 3, it says, If our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. How does God direct us in matters that we can't find in the scriptures? How does he direct us? How does he tell us who to marry? How does he tell us where to live? How does he tell us how to conduct ourselves with other people? Well, he works in our hearts. One of my favorite scriptures, I hope I don't overdo it, is Philippians 2.13. It says, it is God who works in you both to will and do of his good pleasure. So he works in your heart to do the right thing. And if, you're, if you walk with God and do what God says, you will have the right thoughts. You will know your desires will be God's desires. If you desire to move to San Jose and you're serving God and walking with God, then God probably put that desire in your heart. But if you're not walking with God, you cannot trust your desires because they will deceive you. So if our heart condemns us, God is greater in our heart and knows all things. Now, in Exodus 30, here's another reason that David should have known that taking a census was wrong and probably why his heart condemned him. Because he was familiar with the scriptures. This is in the book of Exodus, in the law of Moses. It says in chapter 30, verse 12, When you take a census of the children of Israel for their number, then every man shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord. When you number them, that there may be no plague among them when you number them. We shall see that God brings a plague upon Israel because David numbered the people of Israel. He said, if you will, when you go through and count the people, if you will require a ransom or a tax, in other words, from each person you count, that will keep me from causing a plague to come upon Israel. I think God was teaching them that they should give, that people should give. It seems to me that 
David wanted to trust in the size of his army, in this case, rather than in God himself. Then God lets him choose his own punishment. Look at verse 11 through 13. Now when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and tell David, thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him, and he said to him, Shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? Or shall you flee three months from your enemies while they pursue you? Or shall they be three days of plague in your land? Now consider and see what answer I should take back to him who sent me. Well, let's look at David's choice. Look at verse 14. And David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Well, I guess so. Because David is coming your way, and even though you get to choose it, none of them are pleasant. He said, I'm in great distress. Please let us fall into the hand of the Lord. For his mercies are great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. Now, why did David choose this? Well, because he knew God. That's why. He said, God's mercies are great. Let me and my people fall into the hands of him whose mercies are great. I don't know about you, but if somebody's threatening me, I want to land with a guy who has mercy. Amen, David. God is merciful. Let's look at the punishment for David's sin. Verse 15. So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel from the morning till the appointed time. From Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men of the people died. And when the angel stretched out his hand over Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the destruction and said to the angel who was destroying the people, It is enough. Now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Ornan. Now, it's, there's another word there in your text. It's, I can't pronounce it, so I'm just not going to try. But in First Chronicles 21, the name Ornan is used. And when you look up the Hebrew word, it's one and the same. It's just pronounced differently, but it's Ornan. So that's the word I'm going to use. We're going to see the one starting with A several times, but I'm going to say Ornan. I hope you forgive me. Anyway, so when, when David looked, the angel who was destroying the people was by the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. That threshing floor is going to become very important as we look at the text. Now look at David intercede for Israel. Verse 17. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Surely I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, be against me and against my father's house. In other words, don't punish the people for what I have done. Now, here's David showing his heart once again. He says, I'm the guilty party here. Don't let the people suffer for me, for my sake, for what I've done. But you know what? If you think about it, you know, if we're, if we're not careful, we could blame God for doing something like this. But do you think that God knew the transgressions of each one of those 75,000 people who died? Think he knew what they were? Now, if you notice, he... He slew 75,000 people. They weren't all in one spot. They were from Dan up in the north all the way down to Beersheba. So here and there, people died. 
And God knew every one of them very well. And he picked them out for death. The only thing we can say is that he did it. In the final analysis, it was God himself who took the lives of those who died in the plague. And I think that you are with me on this. We're going to trust God that he made the right choice. I think the words of Job are appropriate here. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now we have God's instructions to David to stop the plague. Look at verse 18. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up and erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. Now, where is the threshing floor? What was the, flesh, where, what was the angel doing when he was destroying the people? He was standing by the threshing floor of Ornan. So David, according verse 19, so David, according to the word of God, Gad, went up to the Lord as the Lord commanded. Now Ornan looked and saw the king and his servants coming toward him. So Ornan went out and bowed before the king with his face to the ground. Then Ornan said, "What has my lord the king? Why has the lord my lord the king come to his servant?" And David said, "To buy the threshing floor from you." to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. And now Ornan said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up whatever seems good to him. Look, here are oxen for burnt sacrifice and threshing implements and the yokes of oxen for wood. And all these, O king, Ornan has given to the king. May the Lord your God accept you. Verse 24. Then the king said to Ornan, No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. You know, when we give to God, it should be a a little bit of a sacrifice. It shouldn't be a tip or some excess that we have. So David brought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord heeded the prayers for the land and the plague was withdrawn from Israel. David offered the oxen that he bought to stop the plague. And he he made the offering, he built an altar on the threshing floor that he had purchased from Ornan. In other words, blood was shed to stop the plague. Over and over, God has shown us that without an offering of blood, there can be no forgiveness. Over and over in the scriptures, from cover to cover. If you think about it, blood on the door kept the death angel away from the firstborn in Israel. The threshing floor of Ornan, which David bought, is on Mount Moriah. What do we know about Mount Moriah? In Genesis Genesis 22, God said to Abraham, Take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I shall tell you. Now, Years later, here's David on Mount Moriah. On the thresh- that's where the threshing floor was. 
Now, what did David say about this threshing floor? This is awesome. In 1 Chronicles 22, verse 1, then David said, This is the house of the Lord God, and this is the altar of burnt offering for Israel. In 2 Chronicles 3, verse 1, it says, Now Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Not far from the temple site where Solomon meant the table, the, the temple, on Mount Moriah is where Jesus Christ died on the cross. Not far from the temple site is another hill. In Luke 23, verse 33, it says, And when they came to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him, and the criminals, one on the right hand and one on the left. Brothers and sisters, we are saved from the wrath of God because of the blood of Jesus at Calvary. Not the blood of animals, but the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Say it with me. What can wash away my sin? What can make me whole again? Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my pardon this I see. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my cleansing this my plea. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing can for sin atone. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not of good that I have done. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. You know, you and I are very much like David. We have done things that are wrong in our lives. We have caused pain to God's people in some cases by things that we have done. Maybe we've caused pain to our families by things that we have done. But just like David, we have a Savior who forgives us of our sins. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this lesson in Second Samuel. The fact that when one of your people makes a grave error and doesn't listen, doesn't take the way of escape, and then sins against you, but then comes to himself and confesses his sins, and you are so quick to forgive and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you, Lord, that you are forgiving God. Thank you that David was willing to fall into your hands because you are a God of mercy. Thank you, Lord. And we pray that you would help us to also be merciful to others, even when they don't deserve it, Lord. Help us to realize that we are to love others the way you loved us. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to leave you with this thought. Uh, this is something I shared with the pastors today, too, but I'm going to say it again. I hope they forgive me. Uh, maybe you've heard of John Wesley. John Wesley. You know, God used him to be very instrumental in the beginning of what is the Methodist Church. And in those days that 
the Methodists really believed in the scriptures and taught the scriptures and preached the word of God. And John Wesley was a man of the book. He loved the word of God. But he boiled down the way he lived his personal life to just three things. And they're very easy to remember, so I want to give them to you before you go. He says, do good. Do no harm. And stay in love with God. Do good, do no harm, and stay in love with God. Amen? Amen. God bless you. Go out and do good for somebody.